everybody. This is episode 38 of DisasterCast. My name is Drew Ray, and I'm recording this episode in the Safety Science Innovation Lab at Griffith University. No, I haven't started the new job yet, but I'm immersed in a fortnight of course planning, industry partners, book outlines, and text on social constructionism. That's right, I'm moving from a Department of Computer Science to a School of Sociology, and already reality is looking a lot more complicated and negotiable than ever it did. In some ways, my move is a metaphor for the whole history of safety science, and certainly it reflects a gradual shift in my own thinking about the epistemology of studying accidents. Before I get into any more of that though, and hopefully before my engineer and physical science listeners have a chance to hit the skip button or the emergency realism return control, I just want to share my excitement about the new course here at Griffith. Yeah, I know more than half of the Disastercast audience is in the UK or North America, but I really just want to make the rest of you jealous while I tell Australians about this opportunity. It's a graduate certificate in safety leadership, hopefully with the option to articulate to a full master's program. The course webpage has now been fixed to make clear that this is nothing like the OCH Health and Safety programs that are offered at other Australian institutions. It isn't really a system safety techniques and method program either though. The goal is to bring together practitioners from process safety, patient safety, system safety and OHS and provide a proper grounding in safety knowledge. And let's face it, a supposedly university-level course that just repeated the content of standards and regulations would not be giving anyone value for money. When we expand to a master's, we will include some content on techniques and methods, but this is the sort of course that starts by asking you hard questions, not by giving the beginner's guide to energy trace and barrier analysis. That said, it is a course designed by practitioners for practitioners with input and investment from some of the biggest companies across Australia. Participants will go away with their brains a bit scrambled and asking some hard questions, but they'll also get a thorough grounding in the stuff they need to know to practice safety in a modern company. Hopefully they'll also have some practical ideas for how to do their existing job well, and the confidence to make a difference at higher levels of safety management. So, add over. Let's talk about postmodernism and social construction. No, actually, let's not. Let's talk about storytelling, and let's start with a story. Even though near misses happen a lot more often than we'd like, it's a pretty rare thing for two civilian aircraft to actually collide. It's even rarer for them to collide mid-air. Usually even mid-air collisions happen near airports, not in crews, and the exceptions are almost entirely military aircraft hitting other military aircraft, or military-civilian mix-up. Passenger airlines just tend to keep apart, and keeping them apart is the highly skilled, highly specialised job of air traffic controllers. Before GPS, aircraft navigated almost entirely along paths from radio beacon to radio beacon, and the airspaces above these beacons the VOR stations, acted as kind of skyway intersections. So they were one of the most critical places for air traffic control. Back in 1976, Zagreb VOR was a particularly busy and important intersection. The airspace above Zagreb was divided into three layers, 
lower sector, middle sector, and upper sector. Two controllers would handle each layer, performing the jobs of keeping the aircraft apart, passing them up or down to other layers, or sideways by telephone into new sectors. Each aircraft, as they entered a sector, would radio the controller and receive a transponder number. They'd then set their transponder to transmit this number back, along with their altitude. So when, for example, BE Flight 476 entered the area, and now I haven't picked that flight at random, they radioed to the controller. Zagreb, B-Line 476, good afternoon. And the controller radioed back. B-Line 476, good afternoon, go ahead. BE 476 then told the controller their current position and attitude. 476, Klagenfurt at 02, 330, estimating Zagreb at 14. And the controller radioed back. B-Line 476, Roger, call me passing Zagreb, flight level 330, Squawk Alpha 2312. Put together, those are instructions to radio back later, to travel at flight level 330 or 33,000 feet, and to tune the transponder to Alpha 2312. If an aircraft didn't tune the transponder, then the controller would just see an unlabeled dot on their display instead of an identity and an altitude. So all the aircraft who've radioed in and been given a transponder number are showing up as labelled dots on the display. Aircraft that haven't radioed in, typically because they're at different altitudes, don't have labels. Ten minutes after the BE-476 call, there was another call from one of the unlabeled dots. Good morning, Zagreb. Adria 550. Adria 550, Zagreb, good morning, go ahead. 325 crossing, Zagreb at 14. What this said was with one aircraft already at 33,000 feet, there was another aircraft checking in, passing up through 32,500 feet. And because both aircraft were using the beacon to navigate, they were heading straight for each other. The controller instinctively talked to the pilot of the new aircraft in their common native Serbo-Croatian language, asking him to hold altitude. Unfortunately, this instruction resulted in both aircraft now holding the exact same altitude, and with a closing speed of 380 metres per second. That's around 2 nautical miles every 10 seconds, and they only had about 20 seconds. There was less than a minute altogether from the very first Good Morning Zagreb Adria 550 to the left wing of the Flight 550, a DC-9, smashing into the cockpit of BE-476, a Trident 3. During that minute, the air traffic controller had to establish contact, work out what was going on, work out what to do, and communicate clearly with the aircraft to avert the collision. And they weren't able to do this. The accident report's ambiguous about whether it was even possible to avert the collision at this point. On the one hand, it states there was insufficient time to separate the aircraft. On the other hand, it criticises the controller's instructions, in particular his failure to use English, stating this directly as a cause of the accident. The report then also looks backwards 10 minutes to when Flight 550 was given permission to climb from the middle to upper sectors. 
At that time, the upper sector controller was working alone. His assistant had gone to look for their relief operator, who weren't there, they were running late. The controller agreed to the handover of Flight 550, but he didn't have any chance to fill out a flight slip. The settings on his display didn't label aircraft in the lower sectors, so even though he'd agreed that 550 could climb up, it was effectively invisible until it actually entered the sector or radioed him. He in fact assumed it would already be at 35,000 feet when it reached Zagreb, so he was surprised when it made contact, still near 33,000 feet. All of the controllers involved in this mix-up were held in custody, indicted, and tried. The upper sector controller was in fact sentenced to seven years in prison, of which he served two and a half. The interesting thing about this accident is there were no mechanical failures at all. And yet it also seems unjust, it seems ridiculous to blame the air traffic controllers for their totally understandable behaviour in a complex, fast-moving situation. Is it really appropriate to send someone to jail? Because alone at a busy console, he prioritised communication with the aircraft over filling out a flight slip. Is it appropriate to blame the middle sector controllers because they chose not to distract him instead of making sure the handover was conducted according to procedures? Should we blame the designers of the display console, who made it possible to filter out the aircraft at different altitudes, a totally reasonable feature you'd think to add, or the supervisors who chose the default settings on the consoles that didn't create overlap between the sectors? Hopefully asking these questions, which are really rhetorical, make clear that blaming anyone is not just unfair, but pointless. But if we're not going to place blame, shouldn't we at least establish causes? Surely we can't just throw our hands in the air and say this sort of accident is inevitable. Well, okay, but if we want to do that, then we're going to need a broader idea of what it means to be safe. There's a lot of inherent danger in having large numbers of aircraft in crowded skies. The 40 years since this accident have provided some technological tools, but ultimately, the safety comes from putting well-trained human controllers into a physical and information environment that supports good decision-making. That's not a universal safety model. There are actually very few operational environments that need these sort of very rapid decisions or so much human interaction. And even those that do can take quite different approaches to generating safety. Automobiles, for example, rely on strict enforcement of rules for individual drivers without having central control. And railway uses central control, but with entirely automated tools for separation. Each model has its own philosophy for how safety is achieved, and it needs management systems and processes that support that particular model. So if you have a model like air traffic control, which chooses to rely on rapid decisions by humans under pressure, that same model can't then turn around and blame those humans. It needs instead to ask why the model wasn't working. In the Zagreb VOR control room, they'd set up a workflow that relied on two operators in each sector. Once one of the operators left without replacement, the workflow was disrupted, with fatal consequences a few minutes later. 
Unfortunately, we can only speculate here, because the investigation didn't report on this central issue. We know the ostensible purpose why the upper sector assistant left. It was to locate an overdue replacement for the other operator. But why was it the job of an on-duty controller to round up missing staff? Did this sort of thing happen often? Was the roster so tight that one late staff member caused a station to get unattended? We've got no answers, and really no understanding of the underlying causes, just the symptoms. Now, I promised this would be an episode with some stuff about storytelling, not just a story. I use stories all the time when I'm teaching and researching safety. Some of them are my own stories, others are stories that I'm passing on. I use stories to introduce topics, and to get people interested in what I have to say. I use stories as discussion points, to open a space for dialogue and exploration of ideas. I use stories as intellectual authority to convince people that I know what I'm talking about, and as moral authority to convince them to do what I say. Stories, particularly stories about accidents, are where most of the meta-narratives of safety come from. Ideas like the Swiss cheese model, disaster incubation, toxic system syndrome, stamp, normal accidents, they're all really story templates extracted from multiple stories for application to new stories. In the telling and retelling of stories, I make narrative choices. These help me make the point I want to make, but you should never believe that I'm telling you the whole story or even that I'm telling you some sort of magically true story. For most accidents, it's even worse. There are no primary sources, and only one secondary source of events, the official accident report. So you're actually hearing my story about a story. Here are some simple examples of the choices I make. One of them is just where the story starts. I started the story of Zagreb, from the moment BE-476 made radio contact. This concentrates on the moment of crisis, which makes a more exciting story. But it de-emphasises long-term decisions, such as the sighting of the VOR, the software design, the staffing of the control centre, and previous incidents or issues that might have given early warning. I set the scene for the story by, by describing different types of mid-air accidents. Even though on the surface I said that mid-air collisions between passenger jets were rare, I actually listed a number of different types of accidents. So I was setting a scene that makes air travel seem more dangerous and less routine than it actually is. Instead of that choice, I could have described the layout of the control room, or enumerated some of the many other flights in and out of the area that the controller had handled that shift making the job seem relaxed and banal before the accident. And I told the story from the point of view of the air traffic controllers. That single decision, just choosing who the protagonist was, guaranteed that no matter what happened, they would appear partially responsible. Just from the way I told you the story. I chose to give you the details in a particular order, rather than a straight linear narration and I held back some details until the right time in the story for dramatic effect. The end result of all these choices I make in telling a story 
is that the story serves my purposes. It conforms to my mental models for how accidents occur and how they should be prevented. Accidents make great stories, but they make awful historical evidence. When we try to understand how accidents happen, we're drawing upon stories told by other people. And there's nothing objective here, because the people telling the stories already think they know why the accident happened. If I can create patterns in accident stories through my narrative choices, and strip them away by retelling the story with different choices, how the hell am I supposed to know if accidents actually have patterns? You know that old canard that 70 to 90% of accidents are caused by human error? What's the difference from an evidence point of view between an accident caused by human error and an accident blamed on human error? You can go back through time and examine how many accidents have operator mistake listed as a primary cause, and you'll see that the proportion gets less and less over time. Does that mean that fewer accidents have operator causes? Or just that we've stopped blaming the operator so much? We don't know. Now, all is not lost. I haven't abandoned my innate faith in empiricism and the scientific method. Even in the dark and gloomy uncertain world of social science, falsifiability is still a valuable tool. And the value of a story comes not from its objective truth, but from its predictive power. The story I told about Zagreb may not be the full story, or the true story, but it makes predictions. It suggests that criminalising controller mistakes won't help air traffic control. It suggests that you can improve air traffic control safety by creating a better work environment with tools and checks that support the operator workflow. And if you check that it still works even in times when resources are stretched or there are other disturbances. Are those predictions true? If so, then it's a good story from an evidence point of view. So that's it for this episode of DisasterCast. There's heaps of stuff on my reading list for this week. If you found the discussion of storytelling interesting, then I really suggest reading Chapter 5 of Sidney Decker's Drift into Failure. It gives a great overview of the meta-narratives used in safety. He doesn't call them meta-narratives, he calls them theories of drift. And I myself before have called them mega-theories. Even if you've read the book before, you might find revisiting Chapter 5 with a storytelling mindset quite rewarding. Thanks to Sid's suggestions, I've also been reading Ontological Gerrymandering, The Anatomy of Social Problems Explanations by Steve Woolgar and Dorothy Paulich. It makes the point that if you want to argue that people construe social issues differently from different points of time and culture, then you need to accept that your knowledge about the underlying reality is also unreliable. That's important when reading about past accidents. It isn't just that people thought about safety differently in the past, but also that we can only know how safe things were through our interpretation of their impressions at the time. I wouldn't recommend it as a light read. What I would recommend, though, is Bridging the Two Cultures of Risk Analysis by Sheila Yanazov. I've also just bought a copy of Deborah Lupton's Risk, 
It comes highly recommended and I'm looking forward to reading it. Thank you to everyone who tweeted or retweeted about the show, or mentioned it on LinkedIn or Facebook. A special thank you to support from Guy Beards, Hall Lines, and Chuck Petras. Yes, I do scour the internet for mentions of Disastercast, and yes, I'm sometimes a bit slow to notice support, but I really do appreciate it. If you're in Australia and listening to Disastercast, now would be a really good time to tell someone in person, not on social media but out in the real world, about the show and about the new course at Griffith. Seriously, we need good safety education, and getting it requires supporting it with enrolments. The next two months are going to be really busy, but with any luck I'll have a couple of recorded interviews to keep the show going on schedule. Till next time, keep safe. Thank you.